Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. Increment 37 already. Coming to you again from the Alamo with Faithful Jim in the place of honor in the video booth and me in the place of great humiliation in the pulpit. Let's pray. Father, we bow the knees of our heart to you from whom all of the families in heaven and earth have derived their names and identities. As we speak forth your word today, we do so in faith, we receive it in faith, and we ask that you will speak peace as only you can speak it into our generation and speak harmony into the agitation and healing into the polarization and the fragmentation of our nation. We know that this ultimately will happen only as the gospel of such a great salvation and of such a great savior as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ becomes published and proclaimed and understood. And only as people awaken to him and arise from carnal death so that Christ can shine on this generation. This is our expectation. This is our hope. And we thank you for this opportunity in his name. Into your hands, I entrust my spirit and the spirit of all those who will hear this message as we entrust to you our nation, our leaders, and all within it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first task today is to accurize, if that's not a word, it is now, our working translation of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. And this accurization or modification will be reflected in the written version of increment 36, which will be on the website soon, though it's not in the spoken version where I spoke it in the last increment. A.T. Robertson, whom I refer to often, the author of Word Pictures in the Greek New Testament, shows that the phrase in Hebrews 2.3 that is literally translated, quote, having received a beginning to be spoken, sounds kind of clumsy in the English, but literally, having received a beginning to be spoken, or we could say, having begun to be spoken, is a koine idiom that can be found, for example, in the military historian Polybius and other writers who were extant at the time of the writing of Hebrews. So expanded to convey the sense, this verse would read, how will we escape a just penalty, that's in brackets, if we neglect such a great salvation? which very salvation, having begun to be articulated through the Lord, was confirmed by those who heard him. Now, a just penalty is inserted here because of continuity with verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 2 reads, For if the word spoken by angels was firm or binding, And every violation of it and disobedient act against it received a just penalty. Then not escaping a just penalty by neglecting such a great salvation spoken through the Lord himself will all the more certainly and justly incur a penalty. Now stay with me on this. The question that the PT puts to his readers and hearers, or readers slash hearers, in Hebrews 2, 
2 through 4 is rhetorical. But that does not mean that such a just penalty is merely hypothetical. It is also evident that there is no escaping and in no fa- and in fact there is no salvation except for the great salvation which God has made efficacious in his son. What is still in evidence here in 2, 1 through 4 is the superiority of the Son, a.k.a. the Lord, over all the angels. Moreover, the word spoken by God in a Son, Hebrews 1, 2, which culminated on the earthly Mount Calvary, And on the heavenly Mount Zion, let me say that again, that word spoken by God in a son, which culminated on the earthly Mount Calvary and the heavenly Mount Zion. That superiority of that word over the word spoken by angels at the earthly Mount Sinai is also in evidence here. The superiority of the son over angels and the finality of the word spoken by God in a son, which Peter calls the prophetic word confirmed and fulfilled in Second Peter one nineteen. That superior word spoken in that son by God is the basis for a strong exhortation to both 1st and 21st century readers. We've already seen that a comparison of Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 with Hebrews 12, 25 to 29, along with pulling in, as we did last time, 1 Corinthians three ten to 15, reveals that the penalty is ultimately the incurring or self-incurring of eschatological loss. However, this is not the loss of salvation. Because Hebrews, the entire epistle, is concerned with an eschatological orientation that is pointing out beyond history Because of that, its message is just as urgent, if not more so, for 21st century readers and hearers as for 1st century readers and hearers. We must not be distracted by historical trends and by hysterical trends among people today. We must be all the more attentive as to a lamp in an an otherwise gloomy place, this world. We must be attentive to the word. Otherwise, it is inevitable that we will be caught up in a riptide of demonic doctrines, human and demonic ideologies, And fall prey to principalities and powers who are moving toward the destruction of nations today. And the destruction of the human family. So then. This salvation that was accomplished from beyond us. Let's say this, from beyond us all, in divine transcendence, and a salvation accomplished from beyond us all, and when I say all, I mean all of humanity, and all of the families of humanity, which are one in God's sight, and have come from one blood in God's scriptures, as is made very apparent in God's scriptures.
Because this salvation was accomplished for all and from beyond us all in divine transcendence. And because it was accomplished for us all in divine promeity, which is God being for all the human race. And because this salvation was accomplished without our involvement and without our will, this salvation is such a great salvation for all. But this salvation working in us by divine eminence, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, does involve our will. It takes in our will and our responsibility, our attentiveness, our responsibility to be attentive, to be intelligent, to be reasonable, and to be in love. Our will is liberated now from abject slavery to sin. If, in fact, God has evoked in us faith in his son. For this reason, we are commanded. Work out your own salvation. Philippians 2.12. And then immediately comforted with. For God is in you, willing and working. For God is in you, in you, willing and working. That which God already accomplished from beyond us all and for us all and can never be lost to any of us is furthermore accomplished or made effective in us, each and every one individually, by God in us willing and doing. God foreordained that such a great salvation must not be left to the chance of human free will. This salvation was enacted by God, the triune God, for all human beings apart from their will. From beyond us all and for us all, with no exceptions. If this great salvation were only for those in the human race who chose to believe, then there would surely be a great percentage of humanity who would choose not to believe through the course of their entire lives on this earth, in this evil age, in this world under the sway of the evil one. The will or a fancier word, the volition of humanity is only free to choose this salvation as it works in us. Consequently, how we build on the only foundation, Jesus Christ, the only foundation, Jesus Christ, the only Name that is named under heaven among men, whereby we are saved, the name Jesus Christ, the only foundation, Jesus Christ, which has been laid already, that foundation. How we build upon that is up to us. Let each one be careful. That means be attentive, intelligent, reasonable, responsible. Let each one be careful how he or she builds, says Paul. In that same passage, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, you should read it 
every once in a while or memorize it or something. Each one must build on the foundation attentively, intelligently, reasonably, responsibly, and in love. No one can put another foundation down than the one that was already put down for us, namely Jesus Christ. But let each one be careful how he builds upon it. Because the will of human beings is liberated in Christ, and that's what it means to know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Knowing the truth that makes you free, the freeing, liberating truth, isn't just any old truth. It isn't my truth, your truth, or any truth. It is the truth that is Jesus Christ. It is the truth that is embodied in him, embodied in Jesus. John 14, 6, Ephesians 4, 21. It isn't any old truth that sets you free. It's the truth that is in Jesus Christ that sets you free. Otherwise, you're not free. But let each be careful how he builds upon it. Now, because the will of human beings is free or liberated in Christ, then each one must choose with his or her liberated will whether to be attentive, intelligent, reasonable, responsible, and loving by paying more attention attention than ever to such a great salvation, more than ever, Or to neglect such a great salvation and to be inattentive, unintelligent, unreasonable, irresponsible, and unloving. To be unloving is to be motivated by ressentiment, by hatred, by bitterness. And by a root of bitterness by which many are defiled. In the same way, each person is responsible for reward gained or for loss incurred in the universal eschatological shaking that's coming. We feel the first rumblings of it from time to time in history. This is the reason for the strong exhortation and for the in-depth exposition, too, for that matter. Not only in Hebrews, but throughout the New Testament writings. Stop thinking that the message of universal salvation destroys human free will. It does not destroy, but establishes it in its rightful place and gives it its proper function. Don't think that I'm preaching a message that destroys human free will. It is a message that liberates human will to be free. Now, do you see how this insight came about? It came about through rightly dividing the word of truth, not by moralistic homilies and the virtue signaling of pastors who have rejected the word of God and have accepted, rather, the ideology of the present in order to be popular or well-spoken of. Because the will of human beings is liberated in Christ, we're free. Through rightly dividing the word of truth, an insight has emerged. It came about through seeing a distinction 
between three aspects of such a great salvation. Three aspects of such a great salvation. Those three aspects are salvation as it comes to us from beyond us, as it's accomplished from beyond us, in divine transcendence. Notice that. That's an advance on our doctrine. A salvation that has been accomplished from beyond us all in divine transcendence. It is a salvation that has been accomplished for us all in divine promeity, which means God's being for the human race and not against us. And it's a salvation that in divine imminence, which is what we would say by the personal presence of God in us, is being accomplished in each and every one. Again, this insight came about through the word of God making a differentiation in our consciousness. The word of God divides, it distinguishes, it makes differentiations of our consciousness so that we can rightly divide between things rather than generalize. The word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword with a blood groove, makes a differentiation of our consciousness between the aspects of salvation that were accomplished from beyond us and for us and that aspect of salvation which we work out or by which we or which we make effective in our own lives. And that is that salvation in us. Now we see why no one can lose such a great salvation. And why all will be saved in the telos, in the end. That's actually basic doctrine. No individual can lose what God has wrought from beyond us and for us. And that means that all will be saved ultimately in the end. Tell us. Tell us about the tell us. Well, it's in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. When the son delivers the kingdom over which he is ruling to the father. And the result is that God is all in all. There is in that passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, a notable reference to Psalm 110.1, LXX1091, like there is in Hebrews 1.13 and 1 and 10.13. So we see why no one can lose such a great salvation and why all will be saved in the end. But we also see, and this is the reason for the exposition, or rather, this is the reason for the exhortation. The neglect of such a great salvation in this life and throughout this life, indifference toward it, apathy toward it, much more interest in other things, how that results in self-incurred, self-inflicted, if you want to put it that way, loss. Eschatological loss. Though not the loss of salvation. Refer again to 1 Corinthians 3.15. Today's doctrine as I preached it so far and taught it so far, goes a long way to solving the problems that people have with free will and divine sovereignty. Or with trying to make sense of an apparent lack of correspondence between divine sovereignty and human free will. By God's sovereign will and grace... 
all of humanity will be saved. Or, in one sense, in the eternal perspective, has been saved. And will come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. By human free will, human beings may choose to neglect or pay no attention to or be indifferent and apathetic to or be sluggish about such a great salvation. Or they can choose to work out such a great salvation by what? How? Well, by reverential obedience to constantly receive with meekness teachability and courtesy toward others, the implanted word which is able to save our souls. It's a matter of how we respond to or don't respond to the word of God. When it becomes implanted in our souls, it is able to save our souls. Now, the element of fire is prevalent in the PT's conception of eschatological judgment. This element of fire is one of the most misunderstood things by hellfire preachers who don't know their gluteus maximus from their ulna, doctrinally speaking, and who threaten people with eternal damnation. That very doctrine is one of the most immoral, in fact, it may be the most immoral doctrine of men that nullifies or attempts to nullify the word of God ever in the history of the world. And they preach about morality and they preach about the immoral going to hell. And the doctrine they are proclaiming is viciously immoral. You can consider the damage it's done throughout history psychologically to people and even historically. You wonder why people are fleeing churches left and right. Nevertheless, fire is prevalent as a concept in the PT's conception of eschatological judgment. Hebrews 6.8. Compared with 1 Corinthians 3.15, Hebrews 10.27, Hebrews 12.29. In Hebrews 6.8, burning is used. And that's said to be the end. Tatelos, T-E-L-O-S. The end of a crop of thorns and thistles. The word telos here hints at the eschatological end. An end Beyond history and an end of history. Especially if we consider the use of this word in the context in which it is used again, Teltelos, in 1 Corinthians 15 24, which says, Then comes the end. Telos. When the Son hands the kingdom over to the Father, etc. In Hebrews 10 27, The PT speaks of, quote, the terrifying expectation of judgment and the raging fire that is destined to consume the adversaries. This verse also has an eschatological tone and orientation. But it also has what we call an apocalyptic one because the adversaries that are about to be destroyed by fire are sin itself, flesh with a capital F itself, and death itself. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15.26 Now then, The fire of Hebrews 12.29, the consuming fire is God himself. Our God is a consuming fire. And God is love. 
The consuming fire is God himself who is love. He doesn't eat up and destroy his creation. He eats up and destroys that which threatens to destroy his creation and has been destructive of his creation. So God devours death and Hades. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And whoever's name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, who is that? Whose name is not in the book of life? Death, Thanatos, and Hades, Hades. God devours death and Hades and sin and the flesh. And by flesh, I mean an eschatological worldwide enemy, not just the body that we have. And at the same time, he purifies through fire all of creation, including all of humanity. The fire that consumes our adversaries, the adversaries of all human beings and of creation, that fire also purifies humanity and all of creation. As Isaiah 4.4 says, For the Lord will wash out the filth of the sons and daughters of Zion and cleanse Jerusalem from the blood shed in it by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. What is it doing? It's purifying. It's washing out. It's cleansing. The fire that washes and cleanses or purifies also consumes dead works. Those are the dead works of those who neglect such a great salvation. And that includes works of people with guilt complexes who have not let the blood of Christ purify their conscience from dead works. And so they do dead works as virtue signals to others because they do not have a purified conscience. And so they do all kinds of weird acts and dead works, and penitential works, which are going to be burned up in the eschatological end. Dead works. Of those who neglect such a great salvation, and of those who produce the works of the flesh, as Galatians 5, 19 to 21 defines them, and lists them. Works that are accomplished as we willfully continue under the control of sin and its synonym, the flesh, or under control of the law, which was hijacked by sin, as we discovered in our study of reading Romans with the light on, especially chapter 7. At any event, with this eschatological orientation in place here, we have our accurized translation of Hebrews 2, 2 and 3. See what I'm doing? An exegesis, an exposition of the exhortation of Hebrews. 2, 2 to 3 reads this way. If the, for if the word spoken by angels was firm and every violation of it and disobedient act against it received a just penalty, how will we escape a just penalty? If we neglect such a great salvation, which very salvation, having begun to be articulated through the Lord, was confirmed by those who heard him. Now, this sentence goes on in verse 4. Verse 4, Hebrews 2 4. God himself testifying at the same time, testifying at the same time. That's the Greek word that entitles today's message. It's a very long word, and it means testifying along with at the same time. It's sun epi marturuntas, 
Tutheu, God testifying at the same time. As the Lord Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus, the God-man, was articulating such a great salvation, God at the same time was bearing witness through the doing of all kinds of signs and wonders and miraculous things as Jesus was showing that such great salvation. So God himself, verse 4, testifying at the same time both by wonders and various kinds of miracles and by distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he willed. So let's consider again this whole paranetic paragraph. Paranesis, P-A-R-A-E-N-E-S-I-S, is a synonym for exhortation. So let's consider this paranetic passage once again in its totality. Hebrews 2, 1 to 4 reads like this. And this will be our working translation for now, not a perfect one. On account of this, we ought to be much more attentive to what we have heard, lest we start drifting away. For if the word spoken by angels was firm and every violation of it and disobedient act against it received a just penalty, how much, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, which very salvation having begun to be articulated by the Lord himself was confirmed by those who heard him, God himself, that's the Father and the Spirit, testifying at the same time both by wonders and various kinds of miracles and by distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he willed. There's the sovereign will of God. So the paragraph that we're considering that's under consideration by us right now begins with an intensification of the transcendent precept, be attentive. We ought to be much more attentive to the word spoken by God in his son of such a great salvation. Not only was this the word that God spoke in his son, it is also the word that debuted with the son, the Lord himself speaking of it. Such a great salvation literally received its debut or the beginning of its articulation, the beginning, R.K., of its articulation through the Lord. The Lord Jesus himself articulated, made very plain and clear this great salvation as the messenger of the great intention, God's great salvific intention, LXX. Isaiah 9.5. As the scripture says in Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Jesus quoted this with regard to himself in Luke 4.18 and following. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now that such a great salvation received the beginning or the debut of its articulation through the Lord himself means that such a great salvation predicted by God in the prophets has come to fruition and fulfillment in a son, in God's son, in the man, Christ Jesus, in the Lord. This salvation has come to us in him, in Jesus. Before his death, the Lord himself spoke of this great salvation. He did so by parables. As the scripture says in Psalm 78.2, LXX 77.2, confer also with Matthew 13.35 where it's quoted. The Messiah speaks in the psalmist and says, quote, I will open my mouth in parables. I will speak of propositions made from the beginning. That includes God's proposition. The word is problemata in the Greek text of LXX 77, two of the Psalms. Problemata 
means propositions, including the proposition to sum up all things in God's Son, the Christ. A lot can be made. A lot can be made out of that verse in the original Greek text. I'm quoting from the Greek text because the PT in Hebrews quotes nearly exclusively, if not completely exclusively, from the Greek text. Jesus also did so, spoke of such a great salvation, by direct speech, saying, for example, if I am lifted up, I will draw or drag like a dragnet of fish. I will drag all to myself. And I think Francois de Troyes, in his book, The Mirror Bible, was correct to say that that includes that Jesus draws all judgment to himself as well as all creation to himself, especially given John 9, 38 and 39, that he came into this world for a judgment. Before articulating this in John 12, 32, Jesus also declared the throwing out of the prince of this world which is another feat that Jesus accomplished as the champion, the champion who secured our eternal salvation. And he secured it through great conflict from which he emerged for us victorious as Christus Victor, Christ the winner. However, his final word, Jesus' final word in the days of his flesh on the subject of salvation, such a great salvation, he articulated it by his own expression of obedience to the salvific will of his Father to the extent of death on a cross in Philippians 2.8. A death in which Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone, for everyone. Hebrews 2.9. That Jesus spoke or articulated such a great salvation was expressed through the synoptic gospels with their emphasis on the parables, but especially in the fourth gospel, John's gospel, where Jesus spoke quite plainly. The first of several things that are enumerated about such a great salvation is that it began to be articulated by the Lord, as we've already established. Second, such a great salvation was confirmed by those who heard him, those whom Luke refers to as eyewitnesses and ministers of the word in Luke 1-2. These eyewitnesses became ministers of the word in that they confirmed the message of such a great salvation that had its debut in the articulation of it by the Lord Jesus himself. Third, God himself testified at the same time, that is, at the same time of both Jesus' articulation of such a great salvation and the confirmation of ear and eye witnesses and ministers of the word regarding such a great salvation, God along with them, testified at the same time, both by wonders and various kinds of miracles and by distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he willed. Now, when John the Immerser, also known as John the Baptist, John the Immerser is probably a better title for him, when he heard in prison what the Messiah had been doing, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, meaning the Messiah, the expected Messiah, or should we look for another? Jesus' answer to those disciples for John the Immerser was, quote, go and report to John what you are hearing and seeing. The blind are seeing again. The disabled are walking. Lepers are being cleansed. Not just ritually purified, but really cleansed and purified and healed. The deaf 
are hearing. The dead are being raised up. And the poor are told the good news. That's the poor in spirit mainly. And blessed is anyone not offended by me. Find this in Matthew eleven twenty, actually eleven two through four. Jesus, who was preaching the good news to the poor, was speaking of such a great salvation, and it was being gladly received by the poor in spirit, by those who we call today, and I count myself among them, the common people. As the Lord was proclaiming the gospel of such a great salvation, he was also being revealed by God the Father and by the Holy Spirit as the champion of that salvation. This passage, therefore, is preparing us to be introduced to Jesus by a name called the champion, Archegos, Archegos, A-R-C-H-E, G-O-S, the champion who secured our salvation, Hebrews 2.10, and also he is called the source, Aitios, A-I-T-I-O-S, of eternal salvation in Hebrews 5.9. That's a salvation that's experienced in us through obedience, our obedience, our positive responsiveness to the word and to the spirit of grace. Now, God the Father and the Holy Spirit was testifying while the Lord was articulating such a great salvation with his words and ultimately by his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. God continued to testify of such a great salvation and of such a great Savior by raising him from the dead. That's a pretty good testimony. It's the greatest wonder and miracle of all, one which will envelop all of humanity, for in Christ all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two, And as Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. He says that to all of humanity. John 14, 19, that God was testifying at the same time as Jesus was articulating and as his witnesses were confirming such a great salvation. The book of Acts testifies of this, that God continued to testify through those who heard and were confirming, I think especially of Peter. But then of Paul, who saw Jesus not in the days of his flesh, but in his glorified status. These wonders and miracles were forecasts of the coming of the kingdom of God in its fullness and of the restoration of all things, which is to be fully consummated when Jesus comes again, not to deal with universal sin but to bring universal salvation. Driving out of demons by the millions. What will the world be like if there's no demonic agitation happening? What will the world be like if there's no demonic possession, demonic influence on people? What will the world be like? Well, we don't know yet, but we can get a picture of it during the days of Christ's flesh in which all who came to him were healed. And demons were driven out of all of the Judean districts by Jesus Christ's word and by the finger of God, which is the Holy Spirit. Moreover, the distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he willed, gifts such as apostleship, speaking forth the gospel with foreign languages, prophecy, the doing of miracles, healings, and expulsion of demons, those gifts, that distribution of gifts, continued in the time of the confirmation of the great salvation enacted in and by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
The PT who wrote Hebrews is a recipient of the gift of pastor-teacher or shepherd who teaches. Ephesians 4.11. Ideally, this gift called pastor-teacher or poimen didaskalos is accompanied by the gift of faith by the same spirit, 1 Corinthians 12.9. For the PT must believe and then speak. When you hear of preachers saying, I don't believe in God anymore, they never believed in the first place. They spoke because they were doing a professional job as a clergyman. But to say, I don't believe anymore, betrays something of their deep experience in the past. I teach what I believe. We speak because we have believed. That's a true pastor teacher. There's a lot of people manning and womaning pulpits today that are no more gifted as pastor-teacher. I don't know what to use as a ferociously brilliant analogy there, so I won't say anything. I can't say no more than the man and the moon because, well, you know, that's possible now. As the scripture says in Psalm 116.1, LXX 115.1, I believed, therefore I spoke. I don't think there is a gift of pastor-teacher without a gift of faith accompanying it. 2 Corinthians 4.13 also speaks to this and alludes to Psalm 115.1, LXX, which in your English Bibles is Psalm 116.1. This gift is still being distributed by the Holy Spirit as he wills in every generation of the church age. Some people receive the gift and go with it. Others refuse the gift or others receive it and quit. As Robertson observed, quote, as the way this is written, as Robertson observed, there was only one generation between Jesus and the writer, the P.T., The urgency with which the PT who wrote Hebrews ought to be the urgency of any PT in our own times. The proclamation of such a great salvation for all people was never needed more than it is right now. So we thank you, Father, for this opportunity. May you hammer these words home into our hearts and souls, where they will remain. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.